In January of 1973, the Supreme Court ruled that unduly restrictive state regulation on abortion was unconstitutional. So this ruling didn't necessarily legalize abortion nationwide, but in essence, it did open the floodgates for nationwide abortion legalization by restricting state regulation of abortion in the event that the state's regulation was deemed excessive. Now, I'd love to say the rest is history, but that would be gravely delusional. Our records on the topic demonstrate that since 1973, tens of millions of abortions have taken place legally, not to mention all the undocumented and illegal abortions. Needless to say, that is significant, very significant. For the sake of time on this session, I will put sole emphasis on answering the question, when does a human's life begin? When does a person become a person? We are doing well to answer the question, what is a human? We've spent significant time on that already. But when does that humanness of our existence begin? And specific to answering the question of when does someone's life actually begin, we will inherently be looking at verses that will give us remarkable insight as to handling the issue of abortion. At some point, it would be good to go over the question of when does that human life end uh, and give some biblical insight into topics like suicide, euthanasia, assisted suicide, mercy killing. And by the way, assisted suicide and mercy killings and euthanasia are real issues in our country. And if they have not done so already, then probably during our lifetime, they will be coming to a hospital or clinic near you. It would be wise to be thinking about this now. But back to our topic on the beginning of life and the issue of abortion. Abortion is probably one issue that we all will be dealing with to one extent or another throughout our lifetimes, as we probably all know someone who has had an abortion, or at least we will at some point. But again, my intent is not to build a case against abortion. It is my intent to build a case for human life using God's word. If you remember anything from our last session together, hopefully you can recall our conversation on secular dualism, where we discussed the fact-value split and likened it to a two-story house where the fact realm was likened to the lower story and the value realm was likened to the upper story. And then we briefly looked at how society today, using the same principles, assumes a body person split or a material immaterial split. I said something to the effect of once we can split my humanity into a material element and an immaterial element, all rules governing my life uh, and my right to life can be rewritten or discarded entirely. And when we think about it, that is not only a scary place to be, it is a godless place to be. There is an awful lot at stake here. And understanding when human life begins and ends is becoming something that all believers need to understand. And it would probably be a good thing if you could defend it biblically. Let me throw out a few reasons why this topic is so important for us. And there are probably tons of reasons. Let me just put forth three. Number one, this topic is important because what is involved in this topic is our doctrines of God's sovereignty, his character, and the sanctity of human life. 
and what I'm about to say might ruffle a few feathers, but hear me out. This is a God issue way before it is a political issue. Yes, abortion has become highly politicized, and there seem to be some very clear lines in the sand when it comes to political parties and where candidates stand and so forth. I get that. But way before this becomes a political or even a social issue, it is a God issue. This session is designed to help you grow in your faith and knowledge of God and help you apply God's truth to your life's circumstances or to help others in theirs. This session is designed to help you defend human life from the truth of God's word, uh, not to become a better apologist on the playground as you debate the other moms who are differing political uh, issues than yourself. You already lost that debate, okay? They care as much about your position on the sanctity of life as they do about your source of truth or the creator who authored that truth. Your focus with them needs to be their, so their, their souls uh, and their beginning a relationship with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, way before it should be political. Okay, back to earth. All that to say, this is important because the doctrines of God's sovereignty, his character, and the sanctity of life are at stake. And that has to come first. And number two, this topic is important because the one who approves of, of or, or conducts an abortion or in any other way facilitates an abortion, that person has made himself out to be God. Now, I will be building a stronger case for this in a few minutes, but God has made very clear that he is the author of every human life and that every human was created in his image and for his glory. So in that sense, if someone is going to take it upon themselves to snuff out the life of a human that God created in his image and for his glory, that person has just transferred to themselves an authority that belongs solely to the creator God. And church, that in itself should be enough to cause us very careful and biblical consideration on this topic of human life, specifically of abortion. And then number three, as to why this topic is important, since God is the creator and sustainer of human life, we should value and protect the life of all innocent humans. If a sovereign God created humanity in his image and for his glory, we as believers should value and protect the life of all innocent humans. Very simply put. All of that has been introduction, and I realize that was lengthy. But I want you to have a good grasp on some of the background and have a good understanding of where I'm going to be in this, this, in this session. To begin, I actually want to take a quick look at two particular historical positions relating to abortion. Namely, the positions of pro-choice in the position of pro-life. And normally, in a session like this, I would simply build a biblical case for the pro-life and then draw some conclusions and applications which would most likely address the pro-choice camp as well. But I actually want to begin here with pro-choice uh, because there are believers and unbelievers alike who have built a biblical case defending abortion by defending the concept of pro-choice biblically. Defending the mother's right to choose to do with her baby what she wants without regard to the moral implications. So let me lay out a few of these arguments 
uh, that the pro-choice camp has found in the Bible to support their position. And the first is this proposition. Life does not begin until breath. Okay, they would say life does not begin until breath. And they would cite Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So a human's life begins at first breath, they would say. All the time that fetus is in utero and its oxygen supply comes from mother and it is not able to survive on its own without the ability to take first breath, until that point in development, it has not become a human. Therefore, to discard it is in no way immoral or unethical, or inhumane. And again, they would derive that from Genesis 2-7 by saying life begins at first breath. Number two, those in the pro-choice camp have also used Ecclesiastes 6-3-5, which reads, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity, it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. And the pro-choice camp would look at this verse and say, look, even the wisest man to have ever walked planet earth, Solomon, says that there is positive, there is rest. For a stillborn child, the likes of which not even some mature adults can find. So if a fetus is discarded prior to birth, this is not a negative thing, they would say. That child has avoided a life of potential discontent and misery, making this an amoral issue, actually a good issue. And let me just say that this is an egregious incident of taking a passage out of context. We need to understand what Solomon is saying in this context and this is really not a confusing passage. Solomon is not making an argument for the benefits that a stillborn child enjoys. Solomon is comparing the fulfillment, or lack thereof, that is experienced by a man who never finds satisfaction in this life. A man can have hundreds of kids, thousands of grandkids, live a long life, and still experience the same satisfaction and fullness, which is none, that a stillborn child experiences. It's a poetic comparison. It's not a case for pro-choice. Let me run one more example by you. Uh, in Matthew 26, Jesus is enjoying Passover dinner with his disciples, and he reveals to them that one of them was betraying him that night. Matthew 26, 24 reads this, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, it would have better for that man if he had not been born. And so the pro-choice camp has pointed to these verses and has declared that based on the very words of Jesus, Judas's miserable existence began when he was physically born. If Jesus really wanted to point to life beginning at conception, he would have said it would have been better for that man if he had not been conceived, right? Something like that. And so these and other verses are used to support various aspects of the pro-choice agenda. Now, let's stop there for a second and ponder something before we move on. 
Remember last session when we discussed the material-immaterial split? This push to divide humanity into two distinct realms of material and immaterial or body and spirit? And I warned us, if we do, indeed, separate the physical body of someone from who they are as a person, there are no limits as to the perversions that we can create relating to life and sexuality. For instance, if the person of Matt Zajac becomes discontent with being a male, I can just reason that a mistake was made at conception. Nature paired me with the wrong body. I am actually a female, but somehow I was born with a male body. And now I can adjust, I can justify a sex change or becoming gender fluid or adopting a homosexual lifestyle or identity because my person and my body are two distinct entities and nature messed something up. That same line of reasoning can be used in the case of abortion. It might look something like this. I can agree that what's inside the womb is material, but it is not human until it is born or takes its first breath. And I am using the pronoun it, and not he or she intentionally, by the way. Now, I can discard the unborn baby because while it is unborn, it is simply material. Just like cutting my fingernails, it's just material. Just like taking out the trash, it's just material. And therefore, there is nothing immoral or unethical or inhumane about discarding an unborn fetus. Okay, when we separate the material from the immaterial, when we separate someone's personhood from their physical body, we can justify anything. That's a dangerous place to be. Let me respond to the pro-choice perspective using a biblical pro-life perspective. Let me just answer quickly some of their arguments and then we'll move on to really the pro-life arguments. What I would say in response to the pro-choice is this. Number one, breathing is not the beginning of humanness. Okay, in other words, if breathing begins humanity, then the final breath would logically have to end humanity, right? But does our humanity end with our final breath? Hmm. Let's see what Paul says. In 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 10, Paul says this. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In other words, Paul says that whether he is present, his physical state on earth, or whether he is before the Lord in glory, his aim is to please God. When he says whether I am home or away, he's not saying whether I am at my home address or away at Dunkin' Donuts or away on vacation. My aim is to please God. Look at the context. Whether I am home on this earth, in this body, or I am in the presence of God, the reason for my existence either way is the same. It's to please God. Paul does not limit his humanity only to the time he is on earth and breathing. Whether in my body or outside of it, I still exist. 
We are humans after we end breathing. And so we are humans before we start breathing. Along that same line of thought, let's look at Revelation 6. As John gives account of what he sees in heaven, he testifies in this way. Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witnesses they had borne, for the witness they had borne. So John sees a, a multitude of martyrs in heaven. Uh, Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then these martyrs in heaven were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And I read those verses to demonstrate that after their final breath on this earth, the life of a human continues to exist in the form of humanity. John sees them. They speak. They are given white robes. And this is all post-death. So my argument is that if final breath does not end humanity, then first breath does not begin one humanity or personhood. And I will add a lot of firepower to this point in a few minutes when we begin to make uh, a biblical case for pro-life. So all that was my first response to the pro-choice camp. Here's my second response. Before birth, a baby is described as human all throughout the Bible. Psalm 51 provides the penitential prayer of David. And in that prayer, he argues that life begins at conception. Did you ever notice that? Let's read Psalm 51, verses 1 through 5, and you'll catch on. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Now check out verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Let me ask you this. Can a desk sin, or does a desk have a sin nature? No. Can a cardboard box sin, or does a cardboard box have a sin nature? No. Why not? Because these things are 100% material. They are amoral. They are non-spiritual. A sin nature cannot dwell in something that is purely material. But David says that at conception, he existed with a sin nature. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I was conceived with a sin nature. A sin nature cannot dwell with something that is non-human, or subhuman, or potentially human. A sin nature can only exist in humans. So even unborn babies are described as human. So with those uh, two quick rebuttals to the pro-choice camp's use of proof texts out of context, let me present eight more arguments for viewing an unborn fetus as fully human. My goal is to present a sanctity of life view to you. And full disclosure up front, this view does not allow for the killing of an innocent unborn baby under any conditions. This is a pro-life view as seen in the word of God. This is where I land personally 
because this is where the Bible lands. And it is my hope that this is where all of you land as well. So arguments for viewing a fetus as fully human. Again, there are eight here. The first one is simply this. Unborn babies are often called children in the Bible. The same word used of infants and of young children. Uh, Luke 1. The child within the womb kicked. Okay, This word for child, which is describing a fetus, is the same word that's used other places for a growing living child. God views a fetus, an unborn baby, as a child, based on verbiage like this all throughout the Bible. All right, number two, the unborn are created by God just as God created Adam and Eve in his own image. Psalm 139, I'll just take a chunk of this psalm right in the middle. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. These verses are an account of all of us. God intricately putting each of us together, bit by bit, part by part. And whether we place our name in these verses and make it personal, or whether we view it purely as the physical formation of David in utero, or whether we put Adam's name in there as one who was created as a mature human who was never in utero, the truths here remain the same. God formed us, knitted us together, and made us in a wonderful way. Like all humanity, we are made in God's image. And observing one in Psalm 139 how all these verbs are taking place pre-birth. In other words, and this is extremely important, every person receives their personhood, and might I add their identity, prior to birth. And while in utero, they image their creator God. No matter what we think about the way God designed us, likes or dislikes, it does not change the fact that we were created for God's glory and God expects to be glorified in return. Remember the blind man in the Gospels who came to Jesus for healing and the disciples asked who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And do you remember what Jesus' response was? He said neither. He was created in this way, so that God would be glorified. And the same is true of all humanity. From conception, we are fully human, and God's intent is glorification as a lifelong result. Okay, number three for viewing a fetus as fully human is this. The life of the unborn is protected by the same punishment for injury or death as that of an adult. When you look at the principles in Exodus, when it, becomes, uh, when, it, when it comes to protecting the life of unborn babies, you can't come to any other conclusion. The life of the unborn was protected to the same degree as the life of an adult. The life for a life concept is first seen in Genesis 9-6. He who kills, you will kill. 
There was a sanctity of life principle established then that remained through the giving of the law, which protected the unborn to the same degree as it protected adults. Number four, Jesus was the God-man upon conception of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he is viewed as human upon conception. And this is trumpeted throughout the early chapters of Matthew and Luke uh, in the case of John and or, or John the Baptist and Jesus, both of them. The conversations of Zechariah and Mary with the angel and Mary's subsequent Magnificat all lend credence to this, that Jesus was the God-man upon conception of the Holy Spirit. He became man. He was man. And that, that took place in utero. Number five, the image of God includes male and female and is determined at the point of conception. Now, we know this scientifically, though the Bible does not state the science of conception specifically. But what the scientists say is that at conception, we can now determine gender. Further, many individuals in the Bible who are yet unborn are referred to by their biological gender and their humanity is referred to. Think of cases like Samson, where an angel appears to Manoah and foretells the birth of Samson and says that even while he is in utero, he is to be consecrated to the Lord as one who would be set apart as a Nazarite. In fact, Manoah's wife was not to partake of the things forbidden for a Nazarite while she was carrying Samson. Number six, and closely related to number five, personal pronouns are used to describe unborn children. We could turn to many passages on this, but let me just direct us to Jeremiah 1.5, where God says, Before I formed you, Jeremiah, in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. You, not it. Okay? Personal pronouns are used in a very personal way of many unborn babies. Number seven. The seventh reason for viewing a fetus as fully human is, is simply this. The unborn are said to be known personally and intimately by God, just as God would know anybody else. Okay, we saw this in Psalm 139. A very personal and intimate knowing of the unborn, just as God would know a fully developed human. Psalm 51 is another good place we could go. We've already been there this morning once. And we just read Jeremiah 1.5. These are other passages that, that all demonstrate an intimate knowledge of the unborn by God. And finally, number eight. The unborn are called by God even before birth, sometimes before conception. God knows us prior to birth. We saw this in the case of Samson. What about the case of Paul? Remember what he says in Galatians 1.15? God who set me apart before I was born called me by his grace. God calls and separates us or several to ministry even prior to birth as unborn humans. Now these are pretty strong arguments. And based on these, I can only come up to one conclusion regarding abortion. And that is simply this. No abortion. Abortion is contrary to the sovereignty of God. Abortion is contrary to the dignity of man. Abortion is contrary to the sanctity of human life. So what about application? 
as a New Testament church, what do we do with all this scripture that has led us to this conviction? Let me present four applications, and I hope these are simple and to the point and a, and a good starting point for much conversation down the road as you wrestle with this topic or help others who are, in one way or another, wrestling with the issue of abortion. And I'm going to address all four of these applications to the church. And by church, I don't mean the organization, programs, and ministries of 215 Colorado Street. I mean the church, the body of Christ, us. These are applications based on truth that we individually need to be embracing and acting on when duty calls, when God leads us to do so. My first point of application is this. The church, us, the church must support the sanctity of life. Why? Well, if for no other reason than because simply this, God does. We must support the sanctity of life. And I'm not going to be any more specific here because this will most likely look different for every believer and every family unit based on where they are in life as they are moved by God to respond. My family might not be in a place right now to adopt a baby who would otherwise have been aborted. However, in two years, that may be God's will for us. So the personal and familial applications are endless here. But how this plays out will look differently for everyone. So suffice to say, the church must support the sanctity of life, whatever that looks like individually. We must all support the sanctity of life, just like we would support any other truth from God's word. Number two, by way of application, the church should be a beacon of hope and faith for those enduring an unwanted pregnancy. An unwanted pregnancy, like other kinds of major life-altering stressors and events, will often bring people to a point of searching and life evaluation, which leads to an openness for God's truth. So when the church, believers in Christ, encounter individuals who are in a state of despair or in a state of searching during an unwanted pregnancy, this is a perfect time for God's people through living out the principles of God's word to be a source of hope and faith for those encountering an unwanted pregnancy. No judgment. No assumptions. No gossip. We as the body of Christ care about life and we possess the hope and faith that distressed mothers or couples need. Number three. The church should be a place of forgiveness for those who have had an abortion in the past. And really, this is just Discipleship Principles 101. When I understand the vast measure of sin debt that was forgiven me, I have no choice but to forgive others who have sinned in this way, whether intentionally or in ignorance. Whether they were believers, have since become believers, or are still lost. Like I said in number two, judgment is not an option. It is time to show the love of Jesus, forgive, put the past in its rightful place, and put aside any human sinful responses that are not compatible with forgiveness. And finally, application number four, and we'll spend a, a bit of time here. 
The church should be a people and place of wisdom and grace for those who are forced to make difficult decisions. The church should be a people and place of wisdom and grace for those who are forced to make difficult decisions. Now, I need to be very careful in how I present this. Because on one hand, we need to be very dogmatic on the sanctity of life and never be proponents of taking of innocent life. But on the other hand, I feel that Christians can be so dogmatic on cases like abortion that we tend to lose the compassion and empathy that doubtless existed and exists in our Lord and Savior. So I would argue that dogmatic belief in the sanctity of life and compassion, empathy, wisdom, and grace are not found on two different coins, but are different sides of the same coin and must both be present. Let me give three examples here of what I am talking about where we might conclude, yeah, there is a little gray area here. Maybe this issue is not as black and white as it might seem on the surface. This is where we must have the mind of Christ. I'm going to start with what I believe is the easiest of the three and we'll work our way to what I believe is the most difficult one. And again, we can't explore every possible dynamic, every contingency, every possibility, and every potential answer for these three examples. I present them to you to get us thinking about the situations we could encounter especially as young couples and families, but that we could also encounter as we interact with and counsel others. And like I said, there may appear to be some gray area here, but God's word gives us some very pointed and specific ways of helping ourselves or others deal with some questions. The first example is simply this. How do we act ourselves or advise others when the unborn baby is known to have a physical or mental disability. I have to imagine that most pregnant couples don't pray that their baby is born with a physical or mental disability. Most couples don't pray, God, please give us a baby who is born blind so that you can glorify yourself. God, please give us a baby with a mental disorder so so that we can grow in our faith through the next 60 years of a very constrained and difficult life. No, I would argue that the opposite is more often the case. We pray for healthy pregnancies and healthy babies for the glory of God. This is an instance where the temptation to abort the baby could be strong and even appear reasonable, right? I mean, we could reason that an unhealthy baby would significantly hamper the life of ministry of a Christian couple who would divert their attention, or which would divert their attention, to too many other things. We could reason that we are knowingly putting a human into life who is going to struggle every minute of his life with this handicap. We need to be a church who is sympathetic, empathetic, wise, understanding, and gracious, but at the same time be able to defend the sanctity of life. Alright, next. What about a pregnancy that was forced through rape? Wow. Here is my humble opinion. 
go back to the truth of Scripture and ask some questions that actually might be a little easier to answer than we might initially think. Questions like this. Is a baby resulting from rape any less of a human than a baby resulting from deliberate planning? Has a baby resulting from rape somehow slipped through the cracks of God's sovereignty? And that's probably the most difficult one to answer for many reasons, but it is still answerable. How about this? Is this baby somehow not a good and perfect gift from God? James 1.17 Or is an unwanted, unborn baby any less created in the image of God? Okay, are any of those questions unanswerable? And I would argue they are not. Difficult? Absolutely. And immeasurably more difficult for the couple or mother trying to answer them. But we do have the answers through God's truth. My third and final example, and the one I think is probably the most difficult, is simply this. What do we do in a case where the unborn baby and or the mother are at risk of death at delivery and the choice may need to be made between saving the mother or saving the baby, but not both? Now, this one is a lot more unique. Instances are fewer and far between. And the decisions that have to be made, probably more so for the husband and father, are unbelievable. And again, because of the countless case-by-case variables that are in play, we can't explore every what-if and contingency. But let me encourage you to have these different scenarios in the back of your mind and be grounded in the truths of Scripture prior to having to face these issues in reality, either personally or helping someone else work through them. Well, this episode really did end on a low note, so I apologize for that. But in reality, we are dealing with some very difficult decisions and heavy material. Rely upon what the Word of God says and be ready to give clear, godly counsel to those who need it. We have the answers through God's wisdom and through the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. Take hope in that.